You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we have a very special guest, McKinsey's worldwide managing partner, Dominic Barton. Earlier this year, Dominic published a new book under the title Talent Wins, along with co-authors Ram Sharan and Dennis Carey. The book argues that CEOs and boards don't spend nearly enough time on people, particularly the people occupying those pivotal roles that make all the difference between success and failure, growth and stagnation. As you'll hear, those aren't necessarily the most senior people by any means. They can be found up and down the organisation. I caught up with Dominic in London to discuss why, in a world awash with capital and roiled by technology, he believes it's talent that wins. So, Dom, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start actually with the question of why talent as a topic? You're jetting around the world, you're meeting interesting people, there must be any number of topics that you could have put time and energy against. Why talent? You know, I have this rule of I've got to meet two CEOs or, or government leaders or social sector leaders a day, which I've done for the last nine years. And one of the questions I ask, particularly CEOs, is if there are three things that you could teach your younger self, what would they be? And what I found consistently the same across countries, sectors, was people would say, I would have spent more time on people. I would have removed people faster, I would have pulled people up faster, and I would have spent just more time with people. And it was, it was consistent. You know, with the amount of change going on in the world, particularly driven by technology, the speed of the world, and I think that the most scarce resource is talent. We are awash in capital. It's, it's talent that you need to drive it. There is the book, The War for Talent, um, which, you know, is probably 17 years ago, I think roughly it came out, which I think is a really important piece of thinking and work. Yeah, I was going to ask you about War for Talent, because that was a quite a significant book at the time. And it argued that hiring and retaining extraordinary talent was going to be like the next frontier of competitive advantage. So here we are pushing 20 years on. What's, what's changed? What's different, if anything? Well, I, I think they were right. I think they were ahead of their time, if you will. Um, but I think, you know, there's a couple of things that make it particularly apropos as to now. One, as I said, is I think we've, we, we have a huge amount of capital in search of people and ideas. Like financial, people, capital. financial capital. There is financial sorry, capital. financial capital. Yeah. And, and it's talent that people are, 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 uh, are looking for. I think the other big shift that, that has that occurred, and it makes this very different than what we saw you know, nearly 20 years ago, is the analytics that we can now do on the talent side. The amount of money that's gone into digital analytics on talent has just, it's just exploded in the last five years. And I think we can now use that. We can use it for ensuring that we're recruiting the right people. We have a better sense of predicting who will leave. Um, we've got a better sense of, you know, who actually creates value within an organization. We can be much more granular uh, about that. 
So the whole analytics around people has changed, and I would argue it's very similar to what we saw for CFOs 50 years ago. A big reason we went from accounting to chief financial officers is from things like Lotus 123, Excel spreadsheets. You could you you could, you know, do scenarios with the financial capital with expenses to see how what might happen and that I think elevated the role um, and required a role for a, a chief financial officer because you could do those sort of things. And we're, we now can do that uh, increasingly with talent. There always will be a need, by the way, for the, I think, the intuitive, the gut. I don't think that, it, I don't think one can ever eliminate it. There was a rumor that we were hiring people without seeing anyone, that we could use artificial intelligence. And we are using artificial intelligence to help us screen resumes, but we're I think going to, at least for quite some time, want to see people and interact with them. Uh, but, but certainly there's a big shift that we can, use, we can do a lot more with the analytics to be able to you know, pinpoint, find people we wouldn't otherwise be able to find, help people progress faster than they otherwise would. One of the very sort of human uh, recommendations in the book is the G3. This idea that at the top of companies there should be a group of three executives, the chief executive, the chief financial officer, and the chief human resources officer. Correct. Just talk a little bit more about why that's important and how it, how it works. Sure. Our strategy practice has found that those organizations, again, that reallocate their capital more than the average, um, which means, by the way, you're taking capital away from a business unit, which is a very difficult thing to do, outperform uh, those that, that really look at last year and add several percentage points to, which is what most organizations do. Um, and the same is for people. And, and you can't, you, first of all, you can't separate the capital or expenses from people that people and, uh, people go with that capital. And we kind of were thinking about that as an afterthought. Well, let's, let's make this investment. Let's make this bet. Let's shift our business towards this area, and then as an afterthought, we kind of think about the people, and you, you can't do that. The type of people you have may affect how much of a shift you want to make. It, it, it can't be a derivative. It has to be part of the coming up with the answer. So that's what we're really keen on is, you know, there's no business plan without a talent plan, and I, I've stolen that from Steve Schwartzman at, at Blackstone, who, you know, put that into the organization when he you know, he hired Sandy Ogg from Unilever, uh, who was the CHRO, as an operating partner to come in and help, you know, as they think about their financial plan for a company that they bought. What's the investment hypothesis? What are we trying to do? You have to have the people plan go with the financial plan or it doesn't work and be explicit about it. So that's why we think it's critical that that the three, the troika, if you will, have to be together. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you can't. Some people, because of what's going on in their organization, may have a chief technology officer that's a G4. Um, some may have a strategy officer that's in there. I, I was going to pick you up on where's the voice of the customer in the right. G3. Yes. But it sounds like it's, there's nothing you, religious about it. It's G3. not religious. It's just more what I would just call it the core of the infrastructure. You, you, you gotta, we got to have the capital and you've got to have the people, and you can build whatever else, but at least get that. Where does the board play in all of this? The board, I think, should 
play a very important role, but, but what we found is it doesn't, typically. Um, we found through some of the research we looked at that, you know, for many S&P 500 uh, boards, they spend less than 5% of their time on talent. And, you know, you can understand it at one level because of all the fiduciary risk regulatory issues that, that are on the table that we've had to deal with over the last, you know, seven to ten years. Um, but it was surprising to us how little time was spent on talent. Now, most boards have some sort of succession planning process. But even that, when you look at what some boards do on that front, it's fairly perfunctory. You compare that to some organizations like ING, where there is a, not only a significant amount of time spent on talent, but it's a very regular process. BlackRock, um, you know, one of the, large, the largest institutional investor in the world, spent a lot of time on their people, their talent, um, how they're doing. Board members get to see the talent. Um, it's just a, it's a regular part of the process. And again, in the companies we looked at that we think do believe that talent wins, they do spend a lot of time uh, on on town, and not just the top 150. This is this notion we talk about later in the book about the you know the two percent that actually drive a lot of value but may not be at the top. Talking about the culture, you know, we can actually measure culture now. We know that was a very amorphous thing to talk about 20 years ago. We we now there's various indicators. We, we McKinsey have some. There's others. We have our organization health index. Gallup's got some very good measures. And as you say, a lot of these things now, you can have a fact-based conversation yeah. about it. It's yeah. not just an arm-waving assertion right. conversation, right. which must make it a lot more compelling for boards to yeah. want to spend time right. on it. Right. Let, let's segue there. You, you mentioned the 2%, and that is yeah. a, a key uh, message from the book. Talk a little bit about this, this 2% who drive a lot of the value at most companies. Yeah. Who are they? Where do you find them? And why focus on such a narrow slice? Well, this came from a number of the working sessions we have with the co-authors, just looking at, you know, what, what drives performance in an organization, how concentrated it is. And we had this very big debate as, you know, 5% or 2%. And we, there's no regression analysis or analytics to say it. We, we couldn't, but, but there was a strong view that it's a very small proportion of people that actually, because of technology that we have today now, because of the, you know, which enables outstanding talent to deliver performance, which is way in excess of what average performance does, um, that we need to be thinking carefully about that. And wh where this actually came from, again, was private equity. Um, and we, we're, this is where we tried to actually get to a number, if you will. And we have a number of examples in the book, but one I like to think about, too, is, again, back to, you know, a private equity firm. They, you know, let's say bought a... 12,000 person organization, a machine tool company, um, and manufacturing company, 12,000 people. And the, the, the investment view was we're going to improve the EBITDA, the profitability from 600 million to a billion. So it's going to be a $400 million EBITDA. And when we take it back into the market, we've taken it private, take it back to the market, we're going to improve the price earnings a little bit. But the core was this $400 million delta. And what they did is break that down into its component pieces. You know, 60 million comes from procurement. Uh, you know, seven, 70 million comes from some distribution um, changes. What they found, again, is you could then translate that $400 million into 37 
specific positions that are going to actually Who's drive that. Drive Who is going to drive it? It doesn't mean, by the way, that the 98% don't matter. They do. And you've got to, you don't ignore them. You have to engage with them. And there's a lot of, but for God's sake, spend time on those 2% who are going to really drive it. And what we found again is those 2% are not typically at the top of the organization. So again, many organizations have the top 100, top 150, top 200. We're not talking about that. We're talking about 2% of people that are, you know, some of them are buried and that were, but drive a lot. A chief procurement officer um, in this machine tool uh, company, it, it's a it's a big deal what that person does. And when you look at the background of this particular company, that the person had had basically 18 months experience. They'd been a you know a line operator, which is great in in um, Asia and actually in China. You compare that person to someone who's at a you know, who's world class in procurement. It's just night and day, and and it makes a big difference to the bot. So again, you know, most people wouldn't be thinking procurement's a big as a lever, a lever, right? An area. In this case, it it, it was right, and it's. Uh, you know, another one was a, a, a Italian bank. I remember it was actually the district manager, someone who's 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 on, you know, overseeing what, you know, twenty branches are going to actually be able to do. The, the the performance difference in those district managers and what they do is phenomenal, right? In terms of improving everything from financial performance to customer satisfaction to loan loss rates. Yeah. And it also was one of the biggest drivers of identifying future leaders because it's the first time someone could actually manage a whole bunch of different areas. And so, um, again, depending on the type, the sector, or the type of company, where it is in its cycle, you know, it'll differ. But you got to know it. And, and what we found again in these examples is these organizations that are talent, they those the CEOs actually know who these people are, and they're, because they also don't want to lose them. And you don't want your competitors to think about nabbing uh, some of the particular people. You mentioned um, the role of technology. It sounded more systemically in creating this this delta or this ability for high performers to substantially outperform less high performing uh, individuals. Just say a little bit more about that. Is is that because you've got access to more data? Because you can just launch businesses so much faster? I think that part of it is you know you can influence. Have a, you can have a much wider influence than you ever had. Your scale ability, if you will, has gone up dramatically. So one individual can affect you know depending again on the business that you're in you know, many, many more customers or many, many more people within your organization, um, many, many more recruits. I think the other other thing about it is you're also able to deal with changes faster. I mean, a lot of, the, with a clock speed that's going up in the world, you know, the ability to be able to pick up a trend or an issue or a topic and being able to move on it can make a substantial difference. If I'm running a big oil and gas major, I'm making these multi-billion dollar, decades-long investments, choosing to go here versus there. Or if I'm a car company, um, Toyota production system, you know that whole method of operating seems much more democratic for good reasons, because it's all about consistency at scale across mass production. So does this kind of notion of the 2% really apply to all companies equally? 
I think it does. But let's take mining. Someone building a, you know, you're building these mammoth projects which are happening. You're doing a big copper mine in, you know, Chile and yep. sort of, Massive you know, you have 5,000 meters. These are, you want people who are those project engineers. I mean, the team, it was a very large team. You, you're going to want to have outstanding people because the, the cost overruns, capital overruns can be 30, 40%. The time overruns can, and that's a, that can make or break a company. A lot of investors are terrified of these organizations doing huge capital projects. So again, it's a kind of a, how do we know we've got the right person doing that? How do we, how do we know we've got the right team? And how, how, how do we know they're learning? And how do we know we're developing the people for it? I would still argue there's a, um, a small proportion that can drive a lot of the value. Why don't we move on to, uh, to agile or to agility, which is a really interesting concept. It, it, it's mentioned here in the book as uh, something that's important to unleash talent in a way in the organization. What do we mean when we talk about agility? Agility is a bit of a buzzword, right? That everyone's, everyone talks about being agile and maybe we don't know what it means. And for, so for me, and I think for us in the book, what we felt is there's a number of components to agility. One is the, this notion of speed. You, you know, with the world moving faster, you've got to be able to reallocate, again, the capital and the people more quickly. And, and when you look at, you look at a lot of startups, not, not startups with two or three people, startups with 50 to 100 people, you notice some very different things. One is they're not on a one-year planning cycle or an eight-week planning cycle. At first you go, well, that, what, what's all that about? It's very interesting. That's not how I was taught at McKinsey coming in. There's a one-year plan, a three-year plan. Well, maybe there's an eight-week plan to literally move resources around and shift it. because we. So there's a notion of part of agility is clock speed, speed of making decisions which by definition means you have to be flatter because hierarchy means you take it takes a lot of time and this kind of notion that you know you got to you got to work it up the chain and down the chain you may have missed the opportunity um, there's a, a second element to that which is you know that I, I think it was an orthodoxy which is that you know in a hierarchical organization the people that know the most are the most senior I, I don't believe that's true it, you know maybe it never was I, it certainly is less true now than it was. So maybe people with the right information are are down in the organization. And so you this notion of decentralizing, flattening, allowing, you know, smaller groups of people to be able to make decisions faster is a, is an element of that. And then it's the cross-functional notion, the idea that you know, no, you need multiple skills to be able to solve a particular problem or get something done in organizations, whether it be a new customer service program, whether it be building out a new set of businesses in Asia or another part of the world. You need to have a cross-functional group of people work together. Um, and so when you bundle just those elements together, you get kind of the core elements of Agile, which is, you know, smaller teams, some people call them tribes, you know, uh, uh, that are cross-functional, ha have really some serious decision rights, and then they may pack up and go and do something else differently. One of the examples we talk about in the book is Hire, which is the white goods manufacturer. I mean, they, they've taken agility to a whole different 
realm. Yes, what, they are truly radical. They're truly they? radical. I mean, I, I've, we, truth be told, they're not a client of McKinsey. If they were, we probably would have told them not to do what they did. But, but taking an 80,000-person hierarchical structure and flattening it um, is unbelievable. I mean, just into hundreds of, of units, right, of people. And, you know, the performance of the organization went up significantly. And again, it was really the, the chairman saying, we got to have more people that are closer to the customer interfaces, feeling the pressures of, it isn't just the customer, it's, you know, whether you're in R&D with the actual product design people, you know, it's very thoughtful, the process they went through to try and get the right pressures, if you will, and incentives, and speed, clock speed, again, was the core element of it. And then to see that, you know, the performance improvement, and then, you know, uh, shortly thereafter buying GE's white goods business as yeah. they went through it. So that's a pretty, that's like neutron bombing an organization. I mean, that, that you have to have a lot of guts to do yeah. that. I. And that, and that was going to be my follow-up yeah. is, uh, as you say, you look at a, a startup, even a moderately sized startup, they have this agility. How do you scale it you know, to a, to a, a large incumbent, yeah. as we sometimes yeah. call them, organization? Yeah. Is, is the management Well, there, you know, there's some, again, there, there's, this is a, it's, it's relatively new, but more people are doing it. I think a lot of people are going to doing it what I might call on a project basis. But there are other, you know, ING is another one, the bank based out of Amsterdam. It's a tremendous example of how they've been able to put in an agile organization, again, with the performance uh, that, that they're proud of, and also, you know, the people side. Because there's also the people element. People like working in that type of an organization. You feel more ownership. You feel you get more decision rights. You grow faster. You got to do it properly, obviously, but we're seeing more and more of that. Um, Sverbank, the Russian bank, is doing uh, doing this. There's a so there are now concrete examples of people. Um, util, energy company, utilities. There's one in Australia. They're just they're going agile, and again, it's and it's not taking you know out the old people and putting in young people. It's people that are you know 52 years old that are learning to do operate at a different speed, digital sprints, you know, to try and figure out what's the, our new the products or what sort of service capability do we want to be able to have? How are we going to work in a different way with people? Yeah, and, and I think it's fair to say that this is an emerging yeah. practice, yeah. right? If you look yeah. at Agile yeah. with a capital A, the Agile Manifesto and software development, that's, that's a pretty well established now set of principles, but how you take that kind of philosophy and scale it across big organizations, yeah. this is kind of leading edge stuff, right? So, yeah, yeah. I think an interesting question, you alluded to it earlier, but what does all this mean for the role of HR? We think the role of HR needs to be elevated significantly. It's, um, it's, it has traditionally been too thought of as a Derivative, or you know, once you've figured everything out, then go talk to the HR. Uh, and and I think again, back to the G three notion, you know, HR is a fundamental partner. It's a it's human capital. Maybe we need to change the name. HR just has all sorts of baggage yeah. with it. With you know, it's admin and benefits, and those are frankly, I'd give that to the CFO. Right. Not that you know, this is people strategy. It's people allocation. It, it reminds me a bit of what you said about board. I mean, one of the reasons boards have struggled to be strategic about people is they've got so many other things on their plate, exactly. much of which is fiduciary responsibilities and so on. And poor old HR 
they'd love to be more strategic, you might argue, but of course they've got all the transactional stuff and the payroll and the pro exactly. I mean, compensation. Compensation, there's so much transactional yeah. work. So how do you create the space for a strategic HR? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, is that it's moving away from the transactional to the strategic. That obviously the transactional stuff has to be done. The compensation has to be looked at. It's critical, you know, but I think there is a people strategy that is required. That's what's going to drive organizations over time and um, and they have to be at the table and so again boards need to be thinking about this way and it, it has to be also it's a CEO agenda item it's not the HR person's agenda the, you know we, we had a lot of debate when we were writing the book you know are we writing this book for the HR person or are we writing the book for a CEO and we had a very strong point if you were writing this for CEOs we you know CEOs have to believe this and drive it. And then by definition, if they do believe and drive it, they're going to hire and put the right person in place to be the HR leader. And there are many very highly qualified HR leaders, but there are also many unqualified because of the nature of the role is, uh, is you know, is different in, in, in this with the analytics that goes with it. And, and the business, you need a, it's a business leader. And we also think more line people need to spend time in HR. I thought it was a really interesting thing in the book, this idea that, you know, every CEO going forward should have spent time that, in HR. Yeah, I, I think it's a, you know, we would, we see a lot of CEOs coming from the CFO role. That's the preponderance yeah. of them come from that. And it's understandable. You've got to be able to talk to investors. You've got to understand the financials and the performance and so forth. You know, I think you also need to be understanding the the talent side and the people side, and it's not it's not gut. There's analytics. There's a there's an approach to developing leaders, and that's where you know you look at. There's we're seeing we don't have in my view enough, but we're seeing examples. Mary Barra has come from the HR side right. at General Motors, yeah. but also you look at a guy like Tom Leinbarger, who's at um, Cummins. I did an interview with him recently. He spent sixty percent of his time with leader on leadership. Right. This is. A very performance-driven person, a lot of technology change going on. He's focused on people. It's, um, I was teasing him. I said, well, who runs the company? He said, that is running the company, you idiot. That's what, you know, what do you think? So, so it's, uh, the, I, I, I think we're going to have to see more of that and people, you know, circulating through that department, uh, through, the, through that construct. Well, Dominic Baum, thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.